Today on the All You Need to Know About Human Physiology podcast, we will be covering the major concepts of the mechanics of breathing, including the muscles and skeleton, alveolar pressure and intrapleural pressure, and airflow, how oxygen is delivered to tissues, including loading, unloading, transport, and expected PO2 values, the filtration and reabsorption of glucose in the nephrons, and the regulation of blood pressure by the renin angiotensis angiotensin system, including direct effects and indirect effects via vasopressin and aldosterone. Let's first start our discussion by talking about the mechanics of breathing. The main muscles and bones involved in ventilation are the diaphragm and the thorax. The diaphragm is concave when relaxed, and as you inhale, it will contract and flatten. The ribcage allows for this process to occur by increasing or decreasing its size, allowing for either more or less volume of air to be apparent. But how does pressure change when we inhale or exhale? In order to understand this, we must discuss what alveolar and intrapleural pressures are. On slide 17 of ML10, in the diagram, we can see that A1, A3, and A5 points are all at zero, or atmospheric pressure. The A1 point shows the beginning of inspiration, where someone is inhaling air. As you inhale, the volume in the alveoli is increasing faster than the air moves up, up until the point A2. A2 shows the point where alveolar pressure is lowest in the alveoli, and this is in the middle of the inspiration because the volume is increasing and the air is moving into the lungs. The opposite is shown through points A3 to A5. Intrapleural pressure, though, is different. As shown in the diagram, as one inhales, the pressure decreases and becomes even more negative when compared to the start of an inhalation. The exhalation brings the pressure up, but the intrapleural pressure will always remain negative and will not reach atmospheric pressure because the lungs are always pulling air in and this is a closed system. So question time, true or false? As you inhale, both alveolar and intrapleural pressures are decreasing. Exactly, that's true. So, as we talk about pressure, airflow is also important to explain. Airflow is explained well in the chart on side 6 of ML10. As one inhales, this air will move from the trachea to the bronchi, to the smaller bronchi, to the bronchioles, and finally to the alveoli where gas exchange will occur due to the high surface area within the alveoli. Before ending our discussion on ventilation, let's look to how ventilation can be affected and some diseases that can result in poor ventilation. Ventilation can be affected by several means. For example, if there is increased airway resistance, ventilation can decrease as it is more difficult to move air through these passages. The same concept can be related to diameter. A decrease in diameter will also decrease ventilation as not much air can flow through the vessels. Additionally, alveolar compliance allows for increased ventilation due to the effects of surfactants and surface tension. Question time. How does alveolar compliance relate to alveolar elasticity? Perfect. They're the opposite. The cells want a happy medium between these two. The fibers must be flexible enough to recoil and to inflate or deflate effectively. There are several common respiratory diseases that you may have heard about. An example of one such disease is emphysema. Emphysema is a respiratory disease that results in people not being able to breathe normally. 
is often caused by smoking, and this disease specifically affects the elasticity of the alveoli, which we just mentioned. An effect of this disease is that proteins are being broken down that disrupt the elasticity of the alveoli, making it more loose. So question time. In patients with emphysema, is the PO2 in the epithelium low or high? What other diseases have PO2 that is low or high in the epithelium? Exactly. The PO2 is low in the epithelium and there's a lot of other diseases that have this. So fibrotic lung disease, pulmonary edema, and asthma all have PO2 uh, that is low in the epithelium. So as air moves into the lungs, gas exchange in the alveoli is needed for oxygen delivery. Several items can help increase alveolar gas exchange. Thin cells, thin basement membranes, and capillaries all aid in the process of diffusion. By having very thin cells and basement membranes, the gas does not need to be exchanged very far distances, so diffusion is able to happen more quickly and effectively. Additionally, the capillaries aid in in diffusion tremendously. The capillaries allow for a great exchange of gas due to the high surface area that they have. Gas exchange is very slow in the capillaries to aid in increased exchange and diffusion. So uh, through gas exchange in the alveoli, we can then understand how oxygen is delivered to the tissues through a specific mechanism. In the alveoli, pressure of oxygen is high at around 100 milligrams of mercury. The oxygen will then diffuse into the pulmonary veins, leaving the alveoli, and the oxygen will then travel to the peripheral tissues where the PO2 is only around 40 milligrams of mercury. This shows that oxygen is moving down its pressure gradient from high pressure to low pressure. After this, oxygen can then travel through the systemic veins at 40 milligrams of mercury, going back to the alveoli and starting this process over. 40 milligrams of mercury is significant as it shows the resting metabolism pressure of oxygen. This process is able to occur due to oxygen's binding properties with hemoglobin in the blood. When oxygen is carried carried and bound to hemoglobin, it is then able to be dissolved in the blood plasma and can then diffuse into tissues to be used in processes like cellular respiration. In the tissues, there's a decreased O2 binding with hemoglobin, hemoglobin, allowing for oxygen to be dropped into the tissues. This is due to the Bohr effect. The Bohr effect shows that in the tissues, the pH is decreased, so it is more acidic, leading to decreased binding affinity of oxygen to hemoglobin. Finally, I just wanted to make a note of the graphs on slide 84 because Dr. Meyer emphasized their importance. High temperature, low pH, and high pressure of carbon dioxide will move the normal percent of the oxygen saturation curve down and to the right. This means that there's more oxygen delivery and there is decreased binding. Question time. If the temperature decreases, how will O2 binding be affected? Exactly. O2 binding affinity will increase, meaning that oxygen delivery will be lowered. So moving on from the lungs, our discussion will now move into filtration and renal activity with the kidneys. The expiratory system's job is to filter the blood. Within this, there are several different structures to help this occur, including the cortex, the medulla, the pelvis, and the nephrons. The nephrons' job is extremely important as the filtering of the blood occurs here. 
First, the blood will move through the afferent arterial to the glomerulus and Bowman's capsule. This is where the filtration occurs, and 80% of the blood is actually not filtered, and it goes back into circulation. The 20% that is filtered is based on the GFR. Glomerular, glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, is affected by all three kinds of pressure. In muscles, we saw that pressure changes only took into account colloid osmotic pressure and hydrostatic pressure. In the kidneys, the GFR takes these into account as well as the pressure of the fluid. The pressure of the fluid flows in the same direction as the colloid osmotic pressure, and these pressures move towards the glomerulus and push back on it. To find net filtration, take hydrostatic pressure minus colloid osmotic minus pressure of the fluid. So question time, is there any point where we would see a hydrostatic pressure moving in the same direction as fluid pressure and colloid osmotic pressure? No, hydrostatic pressure will always move opposite to these. As mentioned before, 20% of the blood volume will be filtered out of the glomerulus and Bowman's capsule, but 19% of this fluid is reabsorbed and 1% is excreted. Of the fluid that is traveling in the nephrons, the sodium, glucose, the sodium and glucose from this fluid are reabsorbed. As seen on side 27, transport is facilitated by different transporters. On the lumen and apical side, we can find low glucose concentration and high sodium concentration. A symporter is used to bring glucose inside of the proximal tubule, going against its concentration gradient. This is able to occur due to the symport of Na plus going down its concentration gradient. After this occurs, glucose and sodium are then reabsorbed due to the activity of the sodium-potassium ATPase and glucose going down its concentration gradient. The sodium-potassium pump will allow sodium to move against its concentration gradient into the ISF and potassium will move into the cell, going from high to low concentration. Now, let's talk a little bit about blood pressure and volume. Slide 56 of ML11 explains how blood pressure and volume can be regulated. If there is a decrease in blood volume, this means there is a decrease in blood pressure as well. This triggers the carotid and aortic baroreceptors to activate homeostatic reflexes. As we learned prior, this leads to an increase in cardiac output and vasoconstriction. This also results in a behavioral change. A decrease in blood pressure or blood volume will make us thirsty, increasing water intake and increasing the extracellular and intracellular fluid volume, increasing the blood pressure. We see that this also has an effect on the kidneys and the kidneys will aim to conserve water so there is less volume of blood lost because we had an initial decrease in blood volume. The diagram on slide 101 explains how a decrease in blood pressure is regulated in several ways. We know that with the arterioles constricting and increased cardiovascular response due to increased cardio cardiac output by heart rate and stroke volume, this can increase blood pressure. We also know that this increase that there's increases in vasopressin, thirst, and aldosterone, which all lead to a subsequent increase in blood volume, which leads to an increase in blood pressure. However, the renin angiotensin system is the reason why all of these processes can occur. Angiotensin is constantly being produced in the liver, and when there is a drop in blood pressure, renin will be produced to convert angiotensin to ang1. 
ang1 is an inactive form, and ace is used to convert ang1 into ang2, the active form. ang2 then goes on to regulate and activate the processes mentioned above. ANG2 will increase the release of vasopressin and aldosterone by stimulating the hypothalamus and the adrenal cortex, respectively, as well as an increase in cardiac output. This will then lead to a subsequent increase in blood volume and pressure, regulating the system. Question time. If ACE is inhibited, will blood pressure and volume increase? No, because ACE converts ANG1 to ANG2, if ACE is inhibited, this will not occur, and ANG2 will not be able to regulate the system and increase blood pressure and volume. Let's move to our last discussion on ion balancing within the collecting duct. Firstly, there are two types. Type A intercalated cells function in acidosis, so they function in increased H plus concentration. Type B cells function in alkalosis or basic conditions, showing that they function in decreased H plus concentrations. In type A cells, H plus is excreted and bicarbonate and K plus are reabsorbed. In type B cells, H plus is reabsorbed and bicarbonate and K plus are excreted. In type B cells, this is beneficial as getting rid of bicarbonate will allow for H plus concentration to get higher regulating these cells back to homeostatic levels. This occurs by decreasing the buffer capacity as bicarbonate acts as a great buffer. That's all for today. I hope you learned something about the major concepts of the mechanics of breathing, including muscles and skeleton, alveolar pressure and intrapleural pressure, and airflow, how oxygen is delivered to the tissues, including loading, unloading, transport, and expected PO2 values, the filtration and reabsorption of glucose into the nephrons, and the regulation of blood pressure by the renin-angiotensin system, including direct effects and indirect effects via vasopressin and aldosterone. See you next week for another discussion. All of the information today was brought to you by the lectures titled Bio 3200 ML10 325 and Bio 3200 ML11 401 by Dr. Karen Meyer. Bye!